So if you get into conversations about God today, most people will throw up their hands and say, oh, I'm not really religious, right? That's how most people get at, like, avoid conversations about God and faith. A popular one nowadays is, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, whatever that means, right? And that's because religion is actually a totally misunderstood word. It has a really negative connotation in our culture because it's usually synonymous with hypocrisy, right? But it's actually a neutral word. It pretty much just means belief system. It's almost a synonym of faith, right? The Abrahamic faith, the Islamic faith, those kinds of things. It's a synonym. But author Ross Douthit, his diagnosis about American religion is that America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion, not the band, okay? The great band. But if there is a bad religion, there must be such a thing as good religion. Good religion can be defined as just the tangible expressions of faith. It's what you do based on what you believe. Bad religion can be defined as an attempt to control God, others, or ourselves by a set of principles and practices based on a faulty understanding of reality. And that is how I'll be referring to it today. This type of religion or religiosity is human-centric, selfish attitudes and actions that shape the way that we interact with the world based on false beliefs. And we learn these ideas from all over the place. We learn these faulty religious ideas from our parents and from teachers, from social media, and just from the cultural kind of water that we swim in. And these things that affect the way that we think about God and ourselves and how we should live. Most of the time, these real religious beliefs, the things that we actually are fundamentally trusting in, lay under the surface and are unspoken, but they shape the motivations behind everything that we do and how we interpret things that happen to us. And if you're having a hard time thinking about what some of these things might be for you, don't worry, I've got you covered, okay? Here are a few of the things that people today, especially even Christians, might default to that are actually twisted versions of the truth, okay? First one, God helps those who help themselves, right? Have you ever thought that or said that or heard somebody else say that? How about be true to thine own self and to thine own self be true? I think that was quoted in Arrested Development as one of the Ten Commandments or something. Um, everything happens for a reason, right? Everyone says it, not in the Bible. Money is the root of all evil, Nope. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. What goes around comes around. Karma, right? Christians are pretty guilty of believing that sometimes, even though it's not a Christian belief. How about, if I had more faith, this wouldn't have happened to me? Or possibly most detrimental, God won't give you more than you can handle. We're probably all guilty of either believing or saying that to somebody who has experienced difficulty. And if you're sitting here thinking, none of those are me. I've never really been very religious. Hold on. I've got something for you too. Let me just ask you, if your zodiac sign has ever been in your Instagram bio, (laughs) 
That's pretty religious. How about, have you ever told anybody that you're sending them good vibes? That's a pretty religious thing to say. Have you ever been to SoulCycle? Are you a member of SoulCycle? Religious. Actually, so one of my favorite uh, quotes from the Instagram handle Overheard LA from a few weeks back, it read like this, all right? One guy says, I'm an atheist. The other guy says, you do anything your yoga teacher says and think that you got a parking ticket because of a planet thousands of miles away. You're a low-key religious fanatic, <laughs> right? So a lot of us don't think that we operate that way. A lot of us don't think that we kind of swim in these religious waters because of what we say we believe, but what we actually believe lies under the surface. And what author G.K. Chesterton said is true. When people turn from God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. Similarly, Martin Luther would say that religion is the default mode of the human heart. And what we're going to look at today is a man who appears to be full of faith. Jeff, Jephthah, appears to be another one of God's chosen deliverers to save Israel from oppression. We've been in the book of Judges for the last three weeks, and we've seen that every time Israel is in trouble, God raises up a deliverer, a judge, to save them. But what becomes apparent through this story, but remains hidden to Jephthah, is that he's merely operating out of religious ideas of the culture that he lives in. Ideas about God and about the world, not actually formed by a relationship with God, but by the prevailing ideas and opinions of his society. So in Jephthah, we'll also have a mirror for ourselves to ask very hard questions about whether we can fall into those same religious traps. So we're gonna start in chapter 11, verse one. If you have a Bible, there's a, bar, a borrowed Bible section in the back, if you don't. Chapter 11, verse one. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So his origin story is pretty rough, right? Illegitimate child, rejected by his family, cast out from his home, and apparently turns into some sort of like gang leader or something like that, right? But before we dig deeper into who he is, we have to understand what set the stage for him. There is this group of people oppressing Israel called the Ammonites, okay? And they had actually been oppressing Israel for 18 years by the time Jephthah shows up. And as we've seen in the past two weeks, when Israel is experiencing hardship during this time in their history, God would raise up a judge to save them. But something is different this time. They had no judge to save them that God had raised up because God was fed up with Israel. They were actively worshiping the God of literally every other nation surrounding them. So Jephthah was born into a religiously confused environment. Because of all of the other gods 
of the other nations floating around Israel, kind of like a religious potpourri or something like that. But most importantly, we have to know about one specific, and that is the Canaanite religion. The Canaanite religion was the religion that Israel most often fell into practicing when they were not following God. And main Canaanite religious practices include worshiping fertility gods by sacrificing children and through temple prostitution. And this is probably how Jephthah was conceived. This was the norm. These things were as Canaanite as apple pie as American, right? This is the water that he's swimming in at the time. Basically, he's like the Bible's version of Jon Snow, all right? He gets, you know, he's the last resort. He gets kicked out of his home, and he comes back to save the day. But what we'll see is that he doesn't quite have the same character arc. His brothers go out to find him and find the place that he's living in where he's been exiled from his family and they beg him to come back and take the job and be a deliverer of Israel because God has not raised one up. So his brothers go out and say, would you please come and deliver us? These same brothers who forced him out of his home now consider him their only hope to save them from this army, this invading army of the Ammonites. So eventually, Jephthah responds and he says, yes, and he has to go to battle against these people. And God actually uses him to give Israel victory. But before he gets into the battle, he makes a rash vow to God that will cost him everything. And what we're actually going to see are four religious pitfalls that show that he is actually not trusting in God for victory at all. He will make many seemingly faith-filled professions about God and who he is, and God will give me the victory, but underneath all of this, we'll see that he really just trusts in himself. So look for how he treats others, and look for how he talks about himself as we read on. Jephthah's first act as a leader is to try to find a diplomatic solution before going to war, which is a pretty good start. So let's read about that in verse 12. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me that you come to me and fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. So it's clear that the king of the Ammonites is not interested in backing down. He literally brings up ancient history. And so Jephthah has to give him a little history lesson of his own. He says, oh, you want to blame your whole situation on us? And he proceeds to give the king a rundown of what actually happened 300 years before when Israel was coming out of Egypt. So this guy is bringing up ancient history of when Israel came out of Egypt and they were going to the promised land and these other people attacked them and they defended themselves. So Jephthah basically says, we didn't take the land away, we were attacked and we defended ourselves and he does a pretty good job and actually recounts a lot of the history of Israel pretty faithfully and accurately, but... In the process, 
he gets fired up and he starts showing his true colors. And this is where we find the first of the four religious pitfalls that will lead him to tragedy. The first one is called syncretism, which is not a word that we hear often today. Syncretism is, is a subtle but dangerous pitfall that religious people can fall into. And it's when people tried to hold together a mishmash of different religious ideas that don't actually work together, but are actually fundamentally opposed. So let's see how Jephthah does that. Verse 23. So then, this is Jephthah speaking, the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Shemash your God gives you to possess? And all that the Lord has dispossessed before us, we will possess. See, the common belief in this time, in the ancient world, is that there are a bunch of different gods responsible for different areas of land. And if a group of people lived in a certain place of land, it was because their god went to war with another god and won it for them. And here we see Jephthah apparently believing that exact same thing. He says, don't be mad. Our God gave us this land. Your God gave you that land. End of story. That's how this whole thing works. But the problem is that's not what the Bible teaches at all. At first, we see that there's kind of like a glimmer of hope for Jephthah. He says, oh, I'm a good diplomat. I'm going to go send an envoy, and we're going to work this thing out peaceably. And he seems to be a good negotiator who knows Israel's history. And he even uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh, which means that he seems to know God personally. But even that is based on this cultural, religious understanding of the world, that he's the God of Israel, not the God of anything else. He's the God of Israel, not the whole world. And the Bible actually shows that it was God who made the world and everyone in it and in the book of Deuteronomy, God says that he is the one who gave the Ammonites, this group of people, their land. Israel was never taught to believe in this territorial God worldview. But here is Jephthah professing to believe in God, but demonstrating that in reality, he really didn't. And we do this very same thing. We are all a product of our own culture, and we are prone also to take something that is merely cultural and apply it to God, to remake an understanding of God that makes the most sense to us. And the most common way that you can see this is how God is like always an old white man with a beard in paintings, right? But, and you know how Jesus is always kind of pictured as this like hippie revolutionary who just wants to like stick it to the man. That's not what he was. That's like our understanding projected on him. But more insidious forms of this we find in American Christianity in the form of the prosperity gospel, right? Like have enough faith and you'll own a jet someday, right? <laughs> or probably my favorite example of this kind of syncretistic understanding of faith is in the sound of music right? Some of you know what part I'm talking about. There's this great song called Confidence. Or no, it's not called Confidence. It's called Something Good. Uh, and Julie Andrews sings, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. 
Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good, right? So she's saying that because of all the good stuff that's happening to her now, it must have been something that she did a long time ago that set the trajectory for all of these blessings that she's receiving now. And we are guilty of believing that very same thing, that it is based on our effort, and it is based on the things that we do that merits God's blessing. It was Voltaire who said, God made man in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. So the second religious pitfall that we'll see is self-righteousness. And it's another pitfall of religiosity that we are all too familiar with. Basically, since you believe that your ideas about the world are the right ones, it can cause you to be disrespectful and ignorant of the beliefs and ideas of other people. When often applied to a group of people and not just one person, it's called tribalism. And Jephthah is guilty of this as well. Verse 25. Now, are you any better Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, did he ever contend against Israel? Or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aroer and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I, therefore, have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Surprise, surprise. Jephthah here is demonstrating this very us versus them mentality that he's developed, this self-righteousness that's caused him to develop a superiority complex because he believes himself to be on the right side. And he even attributes it to the king of Ammonites having a beef with him and not his entire people group or against God. It's just against me. I haven't done anything wrong. It's you people. But possibly the most cringy example of this attitude is something that's not immediately obvious in the story. So remember when he says, why can't you just be happy with the land that your God, Chemosh, provided you? he doesn't even use the right name of their God. That's not the right name of the Ammonites' God, Chemosh. Scholars are actually divided about whether he did this intentionally just to insult them, or if he was actually just that ignorant and didn't know he was doing it. And if you're looking to offend an entire group of people, go ahead and make fun of the thing that's most sacred to them, right? Oh, you're God, you know, um, uh, what's his name? At least use the right name. Come on, right? Unfortunately, Christians are not exempt from this type of behavior. And for this specifically, Christians are all too famous for it often. Uh, Richard Lovelace has some pretty scathing words to say about this. He says, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. 
They come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. And before our mind wanders too quickly to other people in our lives, has this been us as well? The third religious pitfall that we'll see Jephthah fall into is spiritual manipulation. Let's pick up in verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to the Ammonites. Or sorry, he passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So something amazing happens here. The spirit of the Lord actually comes on to Jephthah, even after all of the things that have happened even after God has been silent for this entire story, God comes and enables Jephthah to deliver Israel and give them the victory. And as we've seen in the other stories in Judges, when the spirit of the Lord comes into the situation, he actually guarantees a victorious outcome. So after all of that silence from God in the story, he decides to use Jephthah. And this should be where the story takes a turn for the better but this is the beginning of a dark downward spiral for Jephthah. Verse 30, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them. Based on Jephthah's confessions of faith earlier, that it is God who gives the victory and the Lord is the judge and he will decide who will be victorious, he seems to know that God is the one who will give him the victory and that God actually does fight for and care for his people, but in the face of real fear and uncertainty about his own future, right before he heads into battle, he decides to hedge his bets. He defaults once again to this religious worldview that God is somehow a capricious God that needs to be placated by people. This is actually the only time in the story that Jephthah speaks to God rather than just about him. He only prays when his life is in danger, when the consequences of his actions could lead to his death and when he needs something that cannot be achieved by his own abilities. It is a prayer that is void of real relationship. A couple weeks ago, we looked at Samson, who was another judge that God used to deliver his people, and he did some likewise very idiotic and stupid things, but at least he knew that he was defying the Lord. God still used him, but at least he knew that what he was doing wasn't God's will. That's not the case for Jephthah. He believes that he is doing God's will, and that is what religion does. The book of Judges has said that the Israelites have done whatever is right in their own eyes. Irreligious people or people who do not practice religion often do whatever is right in their own eyes, not acknowledging a concern for God, but religious people do whatever is right in their own eyes, believing that they are doing God's will. And Jephthah thinks that this is how God works. Deep 
down. In spite of his confessions of faith, he believes that God will cut a deal with you, that he can be manipulated. And we do this as well. We say things, you know, maybe under our breath or in our hearts or in our minds. God, if you just get me out of this situation, I'll never do it again. I'll never do this again. Or God, if you get me this better job, all of the extra money is going to go to charity or the local church, whichever, you know. These pronouncements are usually based on a wrong idea of who God is and what he wants with our lives. Like God's just sitting there thinking like, I wonder when so-and-so will stop doing this thing so I can actually help them. That is not God. Just like God had already given Jephthah his spirit before he made the vow, God freely gives us his grace, but often we are too caught up in our own agendas to receive it because it means that we wouldn't have earned it. The problem is that even if God does come through when we make these deals with him, we will think either, A, that it's because we came through on our end of the bargain, or B, we'll be crushed by guilt when we can't hold up our end of the bargain. But the most serious consequence of Jephthah's religion comes when he returns home from this battle to fulfill the vow that he made to God. The fourth religious pitfall, which is self-preservation. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came to meet him. With tambourines and with dances, she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord and cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to the vow that he had made. Are you serious? <laughs> this is the danger of religious behavior. And he half blames his daughter for being the one that comes out of the house first when he returns home. He makes this vow to the Lord, whatever comes out of my home when I return, I will give to you as a burnt offering. And he goes through with it. Some scholars have thought that he actually didn't go through with it, that the focus in the text on his daughter talking about her virginity and weeping for being a virgin means that she actually just remained celibate and never married. But this is an attempt to sanitize the story. Jephthah never intended on sacrificing an animal. It was because of the context that he was raised in where human sacrifice was the normal thing to do. He just didn't think it was going to be his daughter. And he actually didn't have to go through with it. God has made provisions for the Israelites 
in the Bible for not going through with a vow that was made rashly. There are so many reasons that if he actually knew who God is and what God really cares about, he wouldn't have gone through with it. Deuteronomy verse, chapter 12, verse 31, the Lord hates human sacrifice. The story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 that we looked at weeks before, where God tests Abraham by saying, give me your son, and then he doesn't go through with it, and the Lord puts a stop to it. Besides that, he had two months to reconsider his vow. And in the book of Leviticus, like I said, there is a provision for vows that are made in haste. So why did he go through with it? It's self-preservation. It's fear. His religious worldview was the lens through which he really saw the world, and it finally came to the surface. He was thinking, what's going to happen to me if I don't keep my vows to God? Since he believed that his victory and the fact that he was still alive was because of the vow that he made, it demonstrates that the whole time he never really did trust that God was the source of victory. Underneath all of his statements of belief in God, he was actually shaped by a desire for self-preservation. So our question this morning is, what other beliefs are actually shaping us? When push comes to shove, do our actions really line up with what we say we believe? Maybe you're actually somebody who has stood in the shoes of Jephthah's daughter. Maybe you're somebody who has been on the receiving end of somebody else's religious agenda, a victim of hypocrisy. And what the story of Jephthah shows us is that religiosity is a destructive power. The power of the commitments that take hold of religious people who believe they are doing the right thing is evil. Jephthah preferring to protect himself, preferring to keep his own word over considering the value of his daughter's life who was created in the image of God. The sanctity of human life is a value that is imprinted on the soul of every person. We are all created in God's image and we suppress that truth whenever we use other people for our own personal gain. Jephthah's vow was not to secure success for Israel, but to protect himself. To ensure his future, he sacrificed his only daughter. And in so doing, ensured that his family would have no future. She was his only daughter. But in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God has ensured our future by sacrificing himself. It was the same destructive power, the same religiosity that put Jesus on the cross. The religious leaders at the time believed that they were doing the right thing by sacrificing Jesus putting Jesus to death due to his transgression of their religious values. But Jesus' death was paying for their sin and for ours. And his death demonstrates for us that the only kind of sacrifice that God is interested in is self-sacrifice. The gospel of Jesus is the antidote to the poison of the vows that we haven't kept 
and saved from the consequences of ones we never should have made to begin with. So why was Jephthah included in Hebrews chapter 11 as an example of faith? Well, as we've been seeing, as we go through this list, it could actually be called the hall of the faithless. (laughs) The people on this list are not heroes by any means. They are people through whom God has worked in ways that are very encouraging to those of us who have struggled to have warranted certainty in God. And Jephthah's story shows us that God can write straight with a crooked pencil. God can use you in spite of you. But this is the warning for us, that God's activity through us is not a confirmation of God being pleased with our actions, and it is not a confirmation of him being pleased with our character. And it is a hard thing for all of us to ask ourselves, is God using me in spite of me? Of course, none of us want that to be our story. None of us want the cautionary tale of Jephthah to be true of us. So how do we know? What is a way to diagnose whether we are living on the basis of our own religious system or trusting in God's work in the gospel? There's a, there's a really great resource in Tim Keller's book, Center Church, that does just that. It compares the two side by side, religion and gospel. And so we've made a screen and just identify whether or not this is you. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, motivation is based on fear and insecurity, and the gospel says, motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey God to get God to delight and resemble him. Religion says, my prayer life consists largely of petition and the only heats up when I am in need. My main purpose in prayer is to control my circumstances. The gospel says, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose in prayer is fellowship with him. Keller goes on in that book to describe more of this. And he says, only If our highest love is God himself, can we love and serve all people, families, classes, and races? And only God's saving grace can bring us to the place where we are loving and serving God for himself alone and not for what he can give us. Unless we understand the gospel, we are always obeying God for our sake and not for his. So let's get practical. Beyond today, what are some questions that we can ask ourselves that change how we live, where your heart level motivations are coming from? Here are a few. You can write these down if you want. Have we mistaken God's work through us for God's work in us? Does God have the authority to do what he wants with my life? How would I live differently if I really believed that God knows and is working out what is best for me? Ask these questions of your friends, of your spouse, of those who know you the best. What are my blind spots? What are my religious pitfalls? Where am I basing my life more on what culture prescribes than what God has spoken in his word? And God 
has spoken. He is not silent about what he wants from us. He wants us to receive his grace and to walk with him. We'll close with this from the book of Micah, chapter six, where he does just that. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray together.